you have a Bible, would you open to the book of Hebrews? And we are continuing our series in this amazing sermonic letter, Hebrews. And we're in chapter 12, and if you would open to chapter 12, verses 12 to 17, and follow along as I read. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've ever played on a team, a sport, uh, chances are good that at some point in your athletic experience, um, you've, you've had a word from a coach. I was just talking with someone recently who, who doesn't always get the best words of advice from their coach, and, and that can be frustrating, no doubt. But on a team, uh, there's definitely moments when, when, when you go into the locker room, let's say at halftime, and, and your coach needs to give you a corrective word. Uh, maybe you're just slightly down, you know, by a few points or something, or maybe it's just this ridiculous uh, deficit, but the coach is going to give a corrective word. I can remember playing football, and uh, one of my coaches from time to time, if we were down in the locker room, he was known to break clipboards across our football helmets. Um, Thankfully, he did it when the helmets were on, but there's something about the noise, the shattering. Um, I mean, he let it known when he needed to to give us a corrective word. Uh, Not Again, don't recommend that, you know, and, and probably nowadays those things don't happen. Uh, at least not at a high school or lower level. Um, but, but again, even if you've not experienced that corrective word from a coach, you, we can imagine, we can imagine a team needing this word of correction from a coach. Uh, often in, in that corrective word, there might be a, a charge, you know, keep going, don't give up. Uh, and, then, and then a challenge, like some specific things to consider before going back out at halftime. Well, as we continue in the book of Hebrews in this sermonic letter, we are in a section where, as we heard last week from Daniel Flores and, and the week before uh, I was preaching, this, this section of chapter 12, our author has finished the middle section, the bulk of the letter, which has all been about, like the subtitle on the screen, Jesus is greater. He's the greater Moses, better than the angels, better than the system of the law and the old covenant, like, like everything about him, his once-for-all sacrifice, his blood, it's greater. And so the bulk of the letter was about that. And now the shift 
has occurred where the writer, the author, very much a pastor, is somewhat like a coach. He's, he's trying to help his hearers endure, persevere, to keep going because Jesus is greater, because of all that he's accomplished. And where we come today in the section that I just read, we find a corrective word. Uh, it's a corrective word for the church. Yes, for individuals, for even as we said in our catechism, right, God saves us, forgives us, and makes us a part of a people, uh, this, this communion of saints, his holy church, we're, we're, we're together. Uh, and, and so this is a corrective word for God's people, for the church. It's this corrective word that we would endure, that we would persevere in uh, this, this race. Again, if you were here last week, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, um, the author uses the metaphor of this, this contest or race, it's translated, and that Greek word Daniel pointed out as where we get the word agony, right? And if you are crazy people and like to run more than like a sprint, you know, you do long distance, it's, it's agonizing, even if you enjoy it, it really is. Um, and, uh, and that's what the author says, like we are in this long distance marathon race, it can be agonizing, it's this contest, and, and, and we need a corrective word with a charge and a challenge for us. You, you know, God's word is about correction. Let me remind you of this verse, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This is a verse where scripture, two verses rather, where scripture talks about itself. Okay. So the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote that all scripture is breathed out by God. Some translations write, say, inspired, but it's breathed out, literally breathed out. It comes from God. And that scripture that's from God is profitable. And then notice there's four things. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God, the woman of God, the person of God, the person doing what God has called them to do would be complete and equipped for every good work. So just think about those four things a minute. God, God's word teaches. We learn things from God's word. God's word reproves or rebukes, which means God's word teaches us what, what is wrong in our life, where we're out of step. God's word trains us for uh, righteousness. I'm skipping over correction for a minute there, the fourth one. God's word trains us to do what's right, what, what God requires. So if it if it's going to reprove us, right, it's also going to train us in right living. But the third one, where you see the circle, God's word corrects. It corrects us. It shows us what we need to do and how we need to live. And, and so now in, into Hebrews, we come to a corrective word. And that's the sermon title today, a corrective word. And as I've said, this corrective word we're going we're gonna to get a challenge. There's the, the challenge from, from the pastor, from the coach to God's people. There's, uh, excuse me, the charge. And then there's the challenge, the specific details that need to be worked out. But also there's a comfort. I don't know many coaches who give a comfort, you know, after giving a charge and challenge. All right, the comfort, I guess, comes if they win at the end. Uh, but we're going to see in God's word, there, there's comfort from the Lord as well. The charge, the challenge and the comfort. So hopefully you're there already, Hebrews 12, uh, toward the end of the New Testament. And uh, we're going to start with the charge, verses 12 
and 13. The first thing that we have is this, uh, this charge. The first corrective word from our author is, is this charge. So look again at verses 12 and 13. He writes, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. With, with these two verses, what, what our author is doing is really returning to that athletic imagery that he used in verses 1 and 2, where he told uh, the re- recipients to, to, to you know, lay aside things that entangle, to lay aside the weight, and to run this race, to keep eyes on Jesus, right? Well, here again in these verses, that imagery uh, is, is brought back. But our author loves his Bible, he loves what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you've been in our series, you know just so many references and quotes to different passages. And in these two verses, our author's pulling from Isaiah 35, our author's pulling from Proverbs 4. And what we have with, with this first picture of drooping hands, weak knees, really, it's a very vivid picture of exhaustion. Probably that's, that's the point our author is is pulling these texts from is to, to say, look, if you're exhausted, if you're, if you're getting down, let me, let me charge you, lift those drooping hands, you know, strengthen those weak knees, right? Do, keep going, keep running, don't, don't stop. Let me read the Isaiah 35 passage where the Hebrews author pulls these ideas from in, in verse 12. I'm, I'm going to read Isaiah 35, 3 through 8. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. So our author just quotes part of that text. But but these ideas, especially this idea of holiness, he's going to bring up here in just a moment. But again, it's, it's meant to be an encouragement. God's coming back. Keep going endure. Hang in there. I'm giving you this charge. Don't stop running. Keep going. One commentator summarizes this Isaiah reference like this. They they are to hope in God's salvation and to look for his way of holiness. In other words, those who are discouraged because of their dire situation are called to hope in the coming, the justice, and the blessing of God. The strengthening of their arms and knees, therefore, is figurative of them taking heart and hoping in the Lord. And the same idea, then, is present in the next verse, verse 13, Hebrews 12, 13. And this is now where our author pulls from Proverbs 4. 
It says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Really, again, the idea is, again, if you think of running a race on a track, stay in your lane, stay on track. Don't get off onto uneven ground where, where you, know, you can get things out of whack, out of, out of joint. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the, the promise. And again, we're starting to get uh, really ahead to the comfort that I'm going to bring out at the end. But, but, but keep going just as runners are to keep their eye on the finish line. And we saw last week that for us, the finish line is Jesus. He's the one. Um, he's the prize. And, and his way, the way of holiness is to be continued and not, again, off path into the way of wickedness and so forth. Again, we have another image of exhaustion and, and what we could call the crippling effects of being discouraged. This is a charge. This is a charge. Like a coach gives a charge, our, our pastor, author, is, is returning to the sporting metaphor. In his corrective word, he says, first off, charge, keep going, keep running, keep agonizing in this race. It, it can be hard. And we need this coach. We need this coach. And this coach, of course, is a person, a writer. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but, but God does. And, and this word is God's word to us. And so God, through this coach, through this author, through this pastor, is wanting to give us this charge today. Just as athletes get tired and get discouraged, we, we need to hear this. Keep going. Keep going. I remember in junior high, I ran track. Um, and I, again, I don't enjoy running. I played football, and the farthest you ever have to run a football is 100 yards if, in fact, you get the ball at the goal line or the end zone and you make it to the other end, right? Otherwise, it's nice, short, little bursts of, of sprinting. Uh, but somehow I was convinced to go out for track. Um, so I was a sprinter and did, again, short, little 40-yard dash with, like, the max uh, that I had to run. But uh, in one event in particular, or one meet, rather, um, something happened to some of the long-distance runners, and, and I got pulled, tapped, selected, whatever you want to call it, to be part of the mile relay. That means I had to sprint a whole lap. Oh my goodness. I thought I would die. I nearly died. A quarter of a mile. Who can sprint that? Crazy people. But I do remember something about a track meet, a little different even than cross country. Cross country, you know, you're out and about, but at the track meet, you're around this you know, field and there's a track. And I remember sprinting and, and all I knew is I just had to go as hard as I could one lap. And then if I fell and died, fine, as long as I completed it. And as I'm going, hearing my teammates cheering, the coaches yelling, go, Portland House, run, you know, that charge, uh, it kept me going. And then I completed it and my lungs were burning like I've never had them burn. Are you discouraged in this race that the scriptures here and elsewhere describe as the Christian life? Are you struggling in this race, this Christian life? Do you have doubts? Do you have questions? Do you have temptations, discouragements? I mean, are you struggling? It's okay if you are. We all do. Hear God giving you this, this charge. Keep, keep running. Keep running. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. 
Stay in the lane. Stay in the race. Jesus is coming back. He's our prize. Keep going. And as I said, that's drifting into um, to the end, the comfort. But, but here's the charge. Don't, don't stop. Don't stop. Or hear these words, these, these things to hang on to if you are struggling. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, God promises, for I am with you. Be not dismayed or troubled, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you or hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Or these verses from the previous chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31. 29 to 30 here. He gives power to the faint and to him who has, or I went too far. Nope, there it is. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Keep going, keep going. God's with you. That's, that's the charge to this corrective word this morning. Keep running. But there's a challenge also. We, we need a charge sometimes when we need a corrective word, a word to keep us going, to endure. But there's some challenges as well, and that's the second part, the bulk of, of this section this morning. Verses 14 to 17, the challenge. Again, not only a charge to keep running, but, but a challenge, like a coach saying, okay, you, you, you're missing this or that. You're, you're not executing the plays like we talked about. Or notice the other team, they're doing this. We need to adjust some things. Uh, God's word all throughout, but in our section today of Hebrews 12, has some specific challenges that we need to hear, even today for us. So let's look at this, beginning in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So if you have your Bible there, I want you to to notice a couple things. Um, The main verb is right there at the beginning, strive for. That's the verb. That's what we're to do, okay? And that word can be translated pursue, uh, to to make every effort for. And, And so the ESV says strive, strive for. And our author under the inspiration of the Lord, has two things. First, he says, strive for peace with those people that you like and agree with. Is that what it said? Oh, strive for peace with everyone. The Apostle Paul in Romans twelve eighteen said similarly, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. And there's plenty of other verses that speak of this, striving for peace with everyone. To be, to be in a church, to be in a fellowship together is a call for unity. Not uniformity, not everybody looking exactly the same, but to be, to be in unity. And it's really a unity of diversity. We're the body of Christ and we all have different parts and a part to play, and, and, and we can be unified and diverse, and that is what 
we're called to be. And sometimes it means we have to strive for peace. Strive for peace with everyone. But that main verb, strive for, also governs the second part of verse 14. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness. Now again, elsewhere in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7.34, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 5, and 1 Peter, several places, the New Testament call us to pursue to be holy. Let me read 1 Peter 1, 15 and 7 through 17. It says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, Leviticus eleven forty four, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy, this idea of God being holy. I've talked about this before. Um, Yes, it speaks of moral perfection. It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. For, for God to be holy, I heard someone when I was a young Christian at a chapel at Biola, I still remember this. I think it was, in fact, Stuart Briscoe, um, uh, writer, pastor from Britain, and with you know, a voice like Sean Connery's, you just anything they say, you know, someone with an accent, you listen. But he said, to be holy, for God to be holy means that God is distinctively different. There's no one like him. He's distinctively different. And yes, morally perfect and just and good and, and, and righteous. He's distinctively different. And he calls us image bearers, those of us who he saved, his sons and daughters, to be holy, to pursue this this. Holiness. What's interesting, the New Testament also makes it clear that if you're a Christian, you are holy. That's what the Apostle Paul calls most of the Christians that he would write his letters to. To the, and our Bibles typically translates the word saints, to the saints, to the holy ones. In other words, if, if you are in Christ, like we talked about earlier in the Catechism, if his obedience, his righteous living of Jesus has been imputed to us and we've been you know, now have his righteousness counted as our righteousness, we're holy, we're saints. I, I dare you over a cooking coffee to go up to someone and say, hey, saint so-and-so. No, no, don't do that. But you could. So we are holy by virtue of what God has done through Christ in our salvation, and we're to pursue it because we don't fully live in light of who we are. At least I don't. So I need this. You do too. You need to pursue, to strive for holiness, to grow in it. So, right, holiness speaks of our our being sanctified, and and the Bible speaks of positional sanctification, holiness. You're a saint. That's true of you. And it speaks of this this growing in sanctification. And, And so we are growing in it. We're positionally sanctified, and we are progressively being sanctified, pursuing holiness. Strive for it. Now listen, we don't earn our way to heaven. We don't earn our way to be saved by our holiness. No. Holiness, one writer put it this way, is not the condition of salvation, but the consequence of salvation. Okay? But if God has saved you, if he's forgiven you by Christ, as a Christian, you are holy. 
Now strive for living in light of who you are. And our author says, without which, this holiness, no one will see the Lord, could mean, again, uh, as this, this letter is about these warnings of those who might apostatize and, and leave the faith, like if, if you aren't positionally holy, sanctified, you won't see the Lord one day because if he's not done that work in you, you're not his. It could also be, again, speaking of this kind of progressive idea of, of growing in holiness or the way Jesus put it, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, another way of speaking of similar things, And what's the the blessing of those that are pure in heart? They will see God. So as we're growing in holiness, as we're pursuing being pure in heart, um, we get to behold the Lord. Strive for it. Mike Kruger, the guy that we're uh, reading his book for our our Sunday Night Theology tonight, he, he writes this. If you are not on a trajectory toward holiness, you may wonder whether you are really in the race at all. And this explains why our author says that we should strive for holiness. Even if holiness is not the ground of our salvation, it is nonetheless something that we should pursue eagerly. Grace and godly effort, they're not opposed to one another. Grace and merit are opposed to one another. We don't earn, okay, but, but grace is not opposed to, to effort. Paul says in Philippians, we are to work out our salvation because he's already at work in us. So grace is at work and we respond to it. And here our author says, strive, strive for holiness. Strive to grow in this sanctification. Now look down at verse 15. So 14, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for holiness. Now verse 15, the opening words in the ESV say, see to it. Grammatically, some of you are going to love this. Others of you are about to have a big yawn. Don't do it. Hang with me. Grammatically, these words in the beginning of verse 15, they're, they're a participle. What that means is they relate back to that main verb in verse 14, that, that, that strive for. Okay, So he said, strive for peace, strive for holiness. And now he kind of begins to zero in his challenge. See to it as you're striving for peace and holiness And then he's got three things in the remaining verses he's going to more specifically unpack. And there's a semicolon in the ESV, so you can kind of note the three different things. The idea is that God's people are to strive for peace and holiness as they see to it or make sure of these three different things. So let's take a look at these three things. God's people, the church, are to strive for peace and holiness by, number one, verse 15, seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. To fail to obtain simply means to miss out on, to, to, to lack. And it's another way of saying, see to it, church, that, that no one, as far as it depends on you, right, humanly possible, that no one rejects the gospel, that no one misses out on the forgiveness that's offered. Like, yeah, that's what we ought to be about. Like, as far as we can say things and do things, we want to see to it that no one fails to to obtain this, this grace of God. Let's grab one another and and let's run with with them and and remind one another that God's grace is is limitless. He gives more grace, James says. He gives more grace. We don't want to leave anyone behind. We're on this together. 
Let's support one another. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Are we doing that as individuals? Are we doing that as a church? Are you and I striving for peace with everyone, striving for holiness as we see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God? I hope as a church we, we are living the effects of the gospel, yes, in our life, but, but proclaiming the truth of God's grace all over the place. The second item is there in the middle of verse 15. God's people, the church, are to strive for peace and holiness by seeing to it that no root of bitterness spring up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. What in the world is a root of bitterness? Um, there's a guy I listen to sometimes um, online. He, he blogs and, and uh, does a lot of writing. His name is Greg Kokel. He's a defender of the Christian faith and uh, has different programs and, and books on uh, our um, ability to be ambassadors for Christ and whatnot. And he, he has a line, I've, I've used this before. He says, never read a Bible verse. Never read a Bible verse. And his point is, read the verses around a verse, right? Like, if you just read a Bible verse, you're setting yourself up for, uh, at worst case, lots of error and heresy and whatnot, but uh, other times, just some, some misunderstanding. And I think this is a good example of that principle. Never just read a verse. Um, this, this root of bitterness, um, it isn't speaking about feelings, emotions of bitterness that we might have. And that's, hear me, it's, that's not a good thing. We shouldn't be bitter people. Uh, and, and there's other passages that, that speak about that. This is something different. And again, our, our author loves the Hebrew Scriptures, loves the Old Testament. And, and probably, most likely, our, our author is thinking about Deuteronomy 29 um, and the context even of, of there. Uh, so Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. Let me read this verse. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe, right? This is to the people of Israel, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord, our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And then the passage goes on in Deuteronomy 29 to speak about the effects of this person who, amongst God's people, turns away for other gods, other idols, and leaves God and leaves God's people. And that appears to be what our author in Hebrews has in mind when he says, God's people, the church, strive for peace, strive for holiness, by seeing to it that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. In other words, the root of bitterness is probably a person or persons in the church that go undealt with, un- unloved and unspoken to, and, and they, they leave the Lord. And in leaving the Lord, they take others with them. And, and, and this, this root of bitterness, this person or people, they, they cause trouble in the church when this happens. And, and many become defiled. It's contagious. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks of sin in the church as as leaven, as yeast. 
my wife bakes, and, and we have a jar of yeast in, in the fridge, and you just put a little bit of that stuff in, in the bowl with the flour and all the other ingredients, and, and that little bit of yeast or leaven causes that lump to rise, right? A little yeast, the apostle says, leavens the whole lump. And the implication is even a little bit of sin that's not dealt with in love, in grace, yes, can, can spread. And our writer here seems to be saying, strive for peace amongst one another. Strive for holiness. And one of the ways you do that is you see to it that no root of bitterness, no, no group of people, a person spring up and cause trouble that, that then can defile and it can cause it to spread. Are, are you and I seeing to that? It's no fun. It's never fun to go to someone you love and, and point out things in their life. Um, maybe the way they're living, maybe the way they're thinking. But if we're approaching people with grace and love, um, like Jesus said, dealing with the log in our eyes before we talk about specks in others' eyes, then, then we, we, we do this. We, we, we pursue this. But it's, it's not fun. It's hard. It's hard. But this is part of what it means for God's people, for the church, to strive for peace. It's, it's one thing to say, well, I want peace in the church. And, yeah, I want holiness. But we, we do that, according to our author, this challenge here, we do it by, by seeing to it that those things don't go undealt with. Finally, the, the third way we see to it uh, is, is there in verse 16, and then explain more in 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. God's people, the church, were to strive for peace, were to strive for holiness by seeing to it that no one falls into what we could call the immoral pattern of Esau. There's a connection in the scripture to holiness and being sexually moral, right? Here we're to not be like Esau, who's described as being sexually immoral, okay? Well, listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. Do you want to know God's will? Here it is. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, which is just another way to say your holiness... That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So even right there, holiness is connected very much to there not being sexual immorality in one's life. And here our author says, strive for peace, strive for holiness as you see to it that you don't fall into this immoral pattern of Esau. And, and again, it's so strange, if you know your Old Testament stories, um, for this, this statement about him, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Well, what do we think of with Esau? We think of the next stuff. We think of him coming in and being so famished that he, he gives up his birthright for a bowl of stew, of 
all things, right? It wasn't even chocolate cake. It was a bowl of stew and, um, and so on. But, but our author says, no, he was sexually immoral. Um, we're we're going to encounter this word again in a couple weeks when we finish the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, sexual immorality, um, it's where we get in our word, or in English rather, the word Pornography, um, it comes from the Greek word pornos or pornia. So many words in our language are just transliterated words. What does porno, pornography mean? It means sexual immorality. What is that? Well, it's anything sexually that falls outside of what God says is sexual purity, which according to God is in the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. Outside of that is sexual immorality. And, and there's a lot more to be said on that. But Esau, we, we don't hear that in Genesis. Uh, the, the possibility is this. The, the, the truth is that what we do know is that Esau married um, two wives. And so some have said, well, he, he married two wives. And, and lots of Old Testament men had many wives. And God never approved of it, like explicitly. He seems to have allowed it. It happened. Um, but maybe that's why our author says it, the fact that he had two wives, or the fact that the two wives were outside of his, his uh, line of people. And, and so it says in Genesis that his wives gave a lot of trouble to, to Esau's parents, and, and so maybe that's the idea. Um, within um, the Jewish community, um, there, there is speculation, uh, again, that that was the problem. Uh, and so our author, again, who loves his Old Testament, who, who loves all that stuff, is pulling a lot of these ideas together. But our author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls Esau an immoral person in, in his life, specifically sexual immorality and unholiness. And then, of course, there's this stuff with the birthright. For a single meal, he, he sacrifices long-term standing for a short, instant gratification pleasure. So hungry, I don't care about the future. Just give me that meal. Here's the point, and then we'll get to this kind of difficult verse 17 about him not being able to repent. Any kind of pleasure, whether it be sexual immorality, which typically is pleasurable in the moment, for God's people, it's not only out of bounds, but it has consequences. And probably most of us can think of sad examples where sexual sin, sexual immorality has wreaked havoc on people and, and marriages and churches and, and the like. Instant gratification, whether it's sexual sin, whether it's a meal in the place of a birthright, that, that's our author's point. See to it, strive for peace, strive for holiness, see to it that you don't become immoral like Esau. He's, he's brought up as a negative example. And then again, it says... Verse 17, you know, you know the story that afterward, right, when it was all done and he realized that he didn't have his inheritance, when he desired to inherit the blessing, it doesn't say that he was sorry. It doesn't say that he had repented. But when he wanted his, his birthright back, he was rejected. There was no chance to repent in the sense of getting back his, his birthright, though he sought it with tears, though he wept. And so this isn't God's word saying that we can't repent. It's just saying that there are consequences. There is a consequence to Esau. His impulsive instant gratification cost him something. 
Now, again, we know the story. We know God had a plan, a sovereign plan, and God can forgive all of those things, but there are consequences. There are consequences, and so we need to hear this. This is the challenge. This is the challenge within this corrective word. See to it, again, amongst the community, that that you not live this way, this immoral, unholy way. There's consequences if you do. So God's corrective word, church, has a charge. Keep running. God's corrective word has a specific challenge today. As we strive for peace, as we strive for holiness in these specific ways. But as your pastor, I'm not going to yell and break clipboards over your head. I have a comfort for you as we end uh, the message. And that comfort takes us back to the top of the chapter. And again, this is the context. I mean, I'm spending 40 minutes going over these verses, but right there's, this is the context. So not just a Bible verse, but there's this whole chapter. And verse 2 of Hebrews 12 says that in this race, this run, keep your eyes on Jesus. That's the comfort, church. Jesus, the one who will forgive you when you fail. The one who's saved you and has forgiven you and who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Keep your eyes on him, your savior, your Lord, the one who, who, who gave his life for you, the one who's your high priest, like Hebrews talks about in heaven now, having proclaimed it is finished from the cross, and now at the right hand of the Father is there to intercede and to pray for. Keep your eyes on him, the one we will, we will get at the end of the race, at the end of life. Keep your eye on him. This is the, the comfort, our Savior, our helper, our Lord. Don't stop running. Heed these challenges. Keep your eye on Jesus. That's, that's this corrective word. Would you stand as I pray, and then we're going to sing one final song. Father, I ask that by your grace, we would keep our eyes on Jesus. As we heed this corrective word today to keep running, as we heed this corrective word and these specific challenges, Thank you for our Lord. In Jesus' name.